Hello, hello, and welcome to Dubliners by Dubliners, episode 11. This month we're discussing a short story, A Painful Case. As always, we have the story linked in the description of the podcast, and you can follow along with us on our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter accounts using the handle by Dubliners. Also, if you've been enjoying the podcast, please rate us five stars wherever you're listening. This month, before we get into discussing the story itself, we thought we'd take a brief look at love, love in Dubliners, romantic relationships in Dubliners, and maybe romantic relationships uh, in the context of Joyce himself. Lachlan, do you want to kick us off with our thematic discussion? You know, the theme we've selected for this episode is really love. The reason for that, I think, is twofold. Firstly, we're coming into the final third of the stories themselves. This is, as we say, episode 11 of 15. Um, And also, so it's a good opportunity to reflect back on what we've looked at in the past few episodes. Additionally, this story really represents the final interior life uh, story of the collection. The remaining stories really deal with the subject of the stories public lives and their role therein so this is probably a good time to to reflect on that you know i think we, we've dealt with a few different romantic relationships across the the stories of dubliners so far uh we're looking at kind of really araby eveline two gallants the boarding house and you know to a greater or lesser extent a little cloud if we take those in order you know and especially the first two araby and evelyn those are um really kind of the idea of young love and that kind of heated high energy bouncy energetic love that people have and and, and this is very much i suppose the, the counterpoint or the the opposite to that john thoughts yeah there's the characters in this story are, are definitely in a different part of their lives than than, than the characters we see in araby and evelyn you know we'll, we'll get into this story itself later but i think one thing you can draw kind of maybe a parallel between araby and evelyn is that there's a, a failure to apprehend the romantic partner here particularly say in araby where the protagonist has built up this image of the girl that he likes and he we have the, again these kind of like disembodied descriptions of her that really concentrate on like the minute or like physical appearance but like just her wrist or just her hair rather than her as a whole um, and similarly in Evelyn we have this moment at the when she's at the ship ready to go and she has this moment where she's she doesn't know him at all and so I think in, in both the stories we have this desire for love and this uh, this want for love but this failure to apprehend the other person in the relationship absolutely you might say joyce has in these early stories presented us with an idealized idea of love or the characters aren't really necessarily experiencing love itself so much as grasping at or emulating the actions they understand love represents or performing the activities and the functions that people who are in love do rather than innately being in love themselves which i think really distinguishes it from you know the the relationship we're, we're, we're going to explore in this story and i i think in a, in a way that really is reflected in some ways in the other two stories we mentioned uh two glance and, and the boarding house as well where the word i keep using is is mercantile or, or, or mercenary to describe the the, the relationships there where it's, it's very much about what one can get from the other party and while they perform the actions and, and, and go through the motions of a, of a genuine relationship in, in, in both those stories and, and in, you know, to a lesser extent, I would say in Araby and Evelyn, there's always an undercurrent of a material benefit to, to the recipients or, or, or to the performers of these love actions. Yeah, absolutely. Another kind of angle on that as well is that the, 
there's this element of societal expectations in these stories, particularly in the boarding house where Mr. Dorn um, is almost entrapped into into marrying because of, of social expectations around him. So, yeah, it's interesting that you have these two early narratives that have this kind of very idealistic or idealised version of love but doesn't quite live up to in reality. And you have these two stories that are mercenary, this very exchange-based relationship. You know, there doesn't seem to be much affection between the characters. They're much more considering what can they get out of out of the relationship. Absolutely, and then I, I think the last one we mentioned, and 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 really, you know, while we say it's 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 a little cloud, and 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 while we say that that is a depiction of a relationship, I think really that's that's probably more the the output of a relationship, and you know we have a lot of this is a, an unhappily married man, and I think one thing we can draw a parallel between all these relationships is they seem like fair relationships, not even that they're failing to live up to the ideal version of a of a loving relationship, but they don't even seem to be very nurturing relationships at all. And I think what will be interesting about this story is, yeah, let's just jump into the plot summary. Lachlan, do you want to take us through that? Sure. So this story is uh, the story of a man, James Duffy, and it, it, it's really, I've described it as a two-part story. There is an initial lead-up where we get a very basic description building out him as an individual, what his life is like, what his physical character is like. And then, as I'm sure you've guessed, he meets a woman. This woman, Miss Sinico is a little bit older than him. She has a daughter around his age. We're never given his exact age, but based on the descriptions, probably in the early 20s. And he develops what starts out as a platonic relationship with this this woman, Miss Sinico. And over time, it's clear that this relationship is blossoming into something more romantic or that there's a, a romantic undercurrent throughout this relationship. As that occurs to Mr. Duffy, he immediately shuts down the relationship and cuts off all contact with her. Interestingly, we have a jump cut to four years later. That's that's one of the few stories where we have this kind of time lapse happening within the story itself. But we jump cut four years later, and as he's sitting, continuing on with the life that he had prior to his meeting with Miss Sinico for the first time, he discovers a, a newspaper article which gives us the title of the story itself, A Painful Case. And in that, he's discovered that Miss Sinico has either died through a tragic accident, a painful case or very heavily implied throughout the the reported speech or the reported um, newspaper clipping that she has in fact killed herself and this really leads Mr. Duffy to go on a certain spiral I suppose uh, with regard to what his relationship had been with Miss Sinico and the significance of that and he, he goes through something of an emotional journey in a, in a very brief period of time there so I think that really covers off the, the, the plot discussion there and we can really dive into the the more general discussion of the of the story, and I think to, to to kick us off, John, maybe this is this is a question I think we'd propose to to open up the discussion. Is this a love story? Yeah, maybe one point just before we jump into that, I I had a slightly different understanding in terms of the age relationships of the main characters here. I always understood that uh, Mr. Duffy is uh, a year or two older than Mrs. Sinico, um, and that. The encounter he has with her and her daughter, there's there's a sentence there. Maybe I'll read out the sentence. When he yearned, learned that the young girl beside her was her daughter, he judged her to be a year or so younger than himself. So to me, that's him saying that Mrs. Sinico is a year or two younger than than himself. Yeah. No, that's that, that's that's really interesting, John. I'd, I'd, I'd always read it as being the daughter was a year or two younger than than, than Mr. Duffy, but in the context then and... and, and, and as, as I consider the, the, the ages that were presented in the, the extract from the newspaper, it probably does make more sense that he is, in fact, closer in age to Mrs. Sinico rather than uh, Mary Sinico, I believe is the daughter's name. 
Um, so interesting. There you go. But so then to go back to your to your question, uh, is this a love story for? A long time in the story, or up until about halfway through the story, it appears that this is going to be the story of a love affair. And there's a lot of indicators of that through the story. Maybe rather than listing them out now, I think maybe I'll, I'll, we'll address them as we go through the story. But uh, yeah, I, I think up to a certain point in how the characters are described and in certain allusions that are made, Joyce makes it seem like he's setting it up to tell us the story of adultery. Um, but then the latter half of the story flips and it's actually the story of not adultery, the story of a failed romance or, or a lack of uh, an action taking place. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's how I broadly characterize the story. But, uh, yeah, I think you, you even one of those illusions I, I reference you even see in the um, in the first sentence of the story, which is Mr. James Duffy lived in Chapel Lizard because he wished to live as far as possible from the city of which he was a citizen and because he found all the other suburbs of Dublin mean, modern and pretentious. The illusion I'm referring to here is Chapel Lizard, which is a name which comes from the chapel of Isolde, coming from the story of Tristan and Isolde, who are a, a couple who have an affair. So uh, Isolde is promised to King Mark, Mark of Cromwell, I believe. King Mark of Cromwell, thank you very much. Uh, but Tristan is, is to bring her, she's an Irish princess, so she's, Tristan is coming to bring her to Mark, but on the way they drink a love potion and so they start a love affair. So. Yeah, straight away we have uh, an allusion to to a love affair, and and I, I think this this the sentence is also interesting in terms of um, it sets up Mr. Duffy's character as well. Absolutely, and and, and another interesting side note, and, and and something that I hadn't picked up on until probably the fourth or fifth reading is the fact that this is probably the only character I think we've encountered in at least these this collection of stories to date who shares a name with James Joyce himself, James being his uh, his first name. Which um, you know is certainly interesting, and, and and as well, even even in that opening sentence, which again I think speaks to the richness of Dubliners as a collection of stories. The introduction, Mister James Duffy, distinguishes significantly from the likes of counterparts or Clay, where say with Clay we're given the name Maria, but we're not giving her surname initially, and in counterparts, the Farringdon is described as he for a significant chunk of the story before we're, we're reintroduced to him. So again, Joyce is. is even though this is a collection of short stories, Joyce is playing around with the narrative structure and the, the linguistics of each of these stories individually and, 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 and separately. So there's a huge amount you can take even from the opening sentences of these stories. But if we move on from that, I suppose, from that opening sentence, we're given then a, a description of, of the room in which um, Mr. Duffy lives. And to describe it as Spartan is um, probably even generous nearly, I would say. It's... it's um, presented in, in, in very bleak terms it's very utilitarian it's it's all either black or white so i think all the furniture is black with four cane chairs white uh, linens on the beds and a white bookshelf with the books ordered from in size from smallest to largest so you know it, it immediately you're presented with this idea of mr duffy as a character who is very rigid very formal and lacking any really colour in his life. And I think that's a that's a theme we've we've touched on throughout the collection as well, is the, the idea of colour and, and Joyce plays a lot with colour throughout the, the story and, and he plays it again with I think in the in the physical description of uh, Mr. Duffy as well. Yeah, absolutely. We hear that his face which carried the entire tale of his years was of the brown tint of the Dublin street of Dublin streets. So, yeah, again, uh, this colour brown for Joyce seems to normally uh, signify decay in Dublin and the paralysis surrounding Dublin. So we see that Duffy, in his physical description here, is, is almost emblematic of Dublin. 
But um, to go back to your other point about um, yeah, the rigidity of, of Duffy himself in relation to his, his physical surroundings, his, his um, room, if we take again the idea of free and direct discourse, this kind of meticulousness and this uh, specificness, you, you see that as you, as you described, it's it's described as Mr. James Duffy in this story. That's very like utilitarian and specific way of, of putting things rather than having much color to it. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. And taking the torch of that free and direct discourse, once again, there's a really interesting quote there. As um, once we've moved past the physical descriptions. The, the quote is, I think, he lived at a little distance from his body, regarding his own acts with doubtful sight glances. He had an odd autobiographical habit which led him to compose in his mind from time to time a short sentence about himself containing a subject in the third person and a predicate in the, t- the past tense. That sentence in of itself, and specifically that one where he had an odd autobiographical habit, that is a sentence he would, James Duffy would have composed about James Duffy to describe himself and Joyce has woven this into the narrative and, 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 and kind of created this idea of is this actually James Duffy describing himself or James Joyce describing himself or some kind of hybrid of the two where Joyce is you know really drawing a parallel between himself and Mr Duffy and you know I think that's a question we need to bear in mind or consider throughout the collection and throughout the consideration of this story. Yeah, another hint maybe at the similarity between uh, Duffy himself and Joyce is he's described as um, he walked firmly carrying a stout hazel, which I believe Joyce himself uh, walked with a stick. And actually, if I can if I can pick up on that, I don't know if uh, again from the notes from 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 my edition that I'm reading, um, the the act of carrying a stout hazel is heavily associated in Greek mythology, and you know I suppose historically associated with individuals who have a great level of knowledge or a great degree of intelligence and it, it, it's typically associated with individuals who are thinkers and philosophers there is definitely an intention here to make you consider or think about mr duffy as a thinker and a philosopher right yeah and and the other the other kind of parallel with joyce is that we learned that mr duffy is involved in a translation of a play by hauptmann called michael kramer and joyce himself also worked to translate this play earlier in his life the play itself is, is interesting as well in terms of the plot in that it involves a, a father who is lives a kind of a, an ascetic lifestyle, much like Duffy himself, and believes strongly in art, uh, but eventually kind of pushes his son to, to commit suicide. Um, and so, yeah, we can, we can maybe see some parallels between, between Duffy and, and the, the father in, in Michael Kramer, and then maybe also reflect on the, on the later when we see Miss Cynical's suicide would reflect that maybe it's, it's a case of Mr. Duffy failing to take lessons from the works he's reading. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's certainly interesting. And, and I mean, again, I think it's, it's critical to note whenever you're reading Dubliners, anytime a character is reading a book or, or reading, because again, I, I don't think we've had a huge number of characters. I mean, you know, while we've had a wide spectrum of characters from kind of both the lower classes up through to the middle and, and, you know, as we go on, we'll, we'll, we'll talk significantly about kind of upper class characters, especially in the dead. There's very few characters read or actively read or when they are reading, they're typically reading religious texts, the Bible or kind of specific religious texts produced by the, the church. So this is one of the few times we're encountering a character reading gen- for, for pleasure or, or reading uh, other narratives like that. So, 
you know, again, I, I think Joyce is, is is really trying to draw our attention to this this story, Michael Kramer, and the the, the plot thereof, and, and 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 drawing parallels between his character, Mister Duffy, and, and and the character of Michael Kramer. A couple more details on on the characterization of Duffy before we get on to the events of the story. Um, so he, he he seems to be a creature of habit. He eats in the same place all the time. It's described that. He dined in an eating house in Georgia Street where he felt himself safe from the society of Dublin's gilded youth and where there was a certain plain honesty in the bill of fare. So again, reinforcing this asceticism, this rejection of comfort or luxury, it's described that he, he had neither companions nor friends, church nor creed. So he's, he's a very isolated character. Absolutely, yeah. So I think if you haven't read the story and, and you know we're, we're really just rehashing it here for you, the key takeaways are that Mr. Duffy is a very boring very strange character i would say almost inhuman on on, on some level and, and and very utilitarian is, is the word that i uh, i keep coming back to when i when i think of him or when i describe him but all of this rapidly changes so his his one um his one habit or his one interest outside of his his own i suppose internal monologue or his own internal drives are music and he um you know i think joyce describes him as having an interest in mozart again interesting side note while mozart would you know nowadays be quite a popular musician and and and, and quite famous he would have been considered much more outgoing and a little bit bohemian or a little bit unique at the time joyce's writing so you know he was a bit of a you know this is really meant to signpost that his interest in music and his passion for music and particularly the the, the music of mozart and, and these operas is a little bit out of kilter with everything else we've we, we've heard about Mr. Uh, Duffy to date, but it's at one of these concerts that he meets and he first encounters Mrs. Sinico and, and and her daughter. The meeting with them is interesting. It's one of the few times we hear direct speech in the story. So, as we described, we have this narration, which is this third person describing Mr. Duffy in quite exact language, but you have very little um, direct speech. We just hear a little bit from Mrs. Sinico at the start. She says, what a pity there's such a poor house tonight. It's so hard on people to have to sing to empty benches. And from here then, he takes it as his invitation to talk and they and they start to court. And there's a lot of focus on Mrs. Sinico's eyes. Again, this to me plays up the angle of this is a love story or this is a story of infidelity or of an affair. Um, so maybe I'll just briefly read the description we get there. Her face, which must have been handsome, had remained intelligent. It was an oval face with strongly marked features. The eyes were very dark blue and steady. The gaze began with a defiant note, but was confused by what seemed a deliberate swoon of the pupil into the iris, revealing for an instant a temperament of great sensibility. The language there reads like a romance novel, like words like swoon and sensibility and so on. Yeah, no, and I mean, I think it's, it's, it's interesting as well here, the, aside from the physical description we've had of Mr. Duffy up to this point, this is really the first kind of spark of colour, that, that very dark blue of uh, Mrs. Sinico's eyes. And Joyce's language can be very visual in nature sometimes, it can be very abstract and very conceptual, but the times that he's really drawing attention to things like colour and the visual aspects that are going on, you know, that, that's, that's really interesting. And, you know, I, I always imagine when I'm reading this, in my mind, this is almost a, a black and white film and suddenly Miss Sinico arrives and there's a splash of colour and it's that colour in her, her eyes that are really the focal point for, for Mr. Duffy. And, and, and that should trigger in your head as you're reading it. I think Joyce is, is trying to draw attention that this is something new entering Mr. Duffy's life and he's really almost seeing for the first time. And, you know, I, I think we've mentioned it already, but the eyes and, and specifically Mrs. Sinico's eyes 
are referenced numerous times throughout this text. It's, it's, it's really a focal point for Joyce, I think, at least in the, in the interactions that we have between Mr. Duffy and Miss Sinico. Her eyes appear, you know, are referenced a number of times. Yeah, for me, the eyes, it's something that relates to love stories, right? Like, like love at first sight and people looking into each other's eyes. So for me, the focus on her eyes really is, is, is just another indication that this is, Joyce is kind of setting this up to be a love story. And then shortly after we are introduced to her and we're given the physical description, we learn that she's, she's married. And I actually love the sentence that Joyce uses to, to make us aware of this fact, which is, she alluded once or twice to her husband, but her tone was not such as to make the illusion a warning. Which I think is just a, a nice way of putting it is that almost like she's signaling that she's open to to an affair. A- a- absolutely, and I mean I, I think any of the language really in the interactions between Mr. Duffy and, and, and Mrs. Inigo are really highly heated or, or, or highly fraught with 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 kind of a frisson or a, a, a sexual tension. Um, going back to that first interaction, that first quote, the following sentence is the pupil reasserted itself quickly. This half-disclosed nature fell again under the reign of prudence, and her astrachan jacket, moulding a bosom of a certain fullness, struck the note of defiance more definitely. So, in his very first in- interaction with her, he's looking at her bosom, and he's he's kind of saying, "Okay, yeah, there's there's, there's a there's a, a real kind of sexual element to that that's almost lacking in a lot of the other stories, and is is very explicit. And again, for cultural and social context in the publication of Dubliners." This is interestingly one of the few lines that seems to have slipped through the qualms or the issues that, that a lot of the publishers would have had with this. And you know, obviously Joyce is famous for being filthy and and, and really having trouble getting both Dubliners itself and, and, and his subsequent work, uh, Ulysses and, 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 and to a lesser extent Finnegan's Wake, published purely because of the vulgarity that was considered in in, in the language that he's used. So interesting that that one managed to, to slip through. Yeah, I, th- I think one of the problematic phrases in, in, in the collection was that relating to a, a man who maintained multiple establishments or two yep. establishments, again, referring to a man having multiple partners um, or cheating on his wife. Coming back to this story, then, there's maybe another sort of an allusion, it might be seen as an allusion to uh, affairs or extramarital affairs, which is, again, we learned that Mrs. Sinico's husband is a captain, uh, so he's Captain Sinico. One of the big news stories for Dubliners, people in Dublin in general, but Joyce in particular, was the fall of, of Parnell. Parnell was a, a, an important Irish politician who many thought would bring about Irish independence, but he was involved in an affair with a woman named Kitty O'Shea and um, eventually led to his downfall. I don't want to go too deep into it because I think we'll probably discuss Parnell a lot more next month's episode. Please tune in. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting that um, it, it, both Kitty O'Shea's husband was also a captain, so you've Captain O'Shea, and in this story you've Captain Sinico, and so maybe there's a, a bit of an illusion there that um, uh, there's a connection there with Parnell. Definitely, I think um, you know Joyce is throughout this story, and as we've said many times, Joyce is is, is definitely drawing attention to Mister Duffy's character as a cipher almost for multiple different figures and, and 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 he represents multiple different roles i think throughout the throughout the story yeah definitely duffy is a man who can be can be read in multiple different ways and uh, i i think that's part of part of joyce's skill is that he he creates these characters that are once both believable but but somehow unresolved that require you to bring something of yourself to the text so then to go back to to then their their continuing development of, of duffy and, and mrs Sinico is they start meeting by accident, so he meets her initially at the at the concert, and then later they meet again, and eventually they agree to make an appointment to meet up. Um, 
they initially Mr. Sinico wants them to kind of meet in private and to, to go on like walks where not, not many people will see them but Duffy himself doesn't like this kind of approach he wants everything to be in the open it's one of his values and so he forces her basically to invite him to her home uh, and there Mr. Sinico or Captain Sinico doesn't really seem to mind Duffy at all and uh, there's there's also a, a description of how Mr. Captain Sinico thinks of his wife which is um yeah, Captain Sunico encouraged his visit, thinking that his daughter's hand was in question. He had dismissed his wife so sincerely from his gallery of pleasures that he did not suspect anyone else would take an interest in her. Which is, yeah, bleak picture of Mrs. Sinico's marriage. We don't actually get so much characterization of Mr. Sinico in this story, I don't think, but... No, not not a huge amount. And, and, and actually, interestingly, you, you, you get more characterization of Mr. Sinico from the newspaper report that we'll we'll, we'll, we'll touch on in a, in a little bit but you really that, that that's I feel where you get more of both Mr. Sinego and, and interestingly the daughter as well the daughter is almost treated as a a, de- a plot device more so than than anything else really and it's it's interesting you know I think in in some ways Joyce is probably touching on an idea that we'll pick up on a little bit later in not in the next story but the story after that a mother where the role of a married woman in society is up for debate and is, is questioned. And I think that's a theme Joyce comes back to again and again in later works, especially in Ulysses. It's, it's certainly interesting, the role of uh, the, the women there. And you, you've, you've got to wonder the role Nora Barnacle played in Joyce's decision to kind of center women and, and to, to focus on kind of almost a proto-feminist um at, the, at this time now obviously in, in, again in the social cultural context this would have been a time where you, you'd have the likes of Virginia Woolf and, and, and really that emerging feminist literature was really coming into the fore so to a certain extent Joyce was ruminating on a lot of the same ideas that were happening in this kind of postmodernist or this arguably modernist and you know this is a debate we've had a few times already but I think it's an interesting idea that Joyce is if not addressing directly the issues or concerns that he has around the role of women in society he's certainly willing to point out society's flaws and hold up a mirror to society and say well this is how we treat women what does that mean for the role of women in society and things like that and you know i think that's again just another string in the bow of of joyce's strength and, and and why you know we're still talking about this collection of stories now but that's a little bit of a side note if we bring it back to the narrative and, and back to the point we were making and um, you know the, the affair if we can call it an affair and i i think that's certainly up for debate that continues on for a, a time until yes yeah, so, so so they continue to meet um and uh, it appears that their affair is an intellectual one if, if we can call it an affair a lot of it involves mr duffy explaining his theories on the world to to mr Sinico, and so we hear two key aspects here, or two key intellectual currents or things that are going on. So first we hear his opinion on socialism, and we learn that he was briefly involved with some um, socialist organisation, the Irish Socialist Party, but he gave up on his association with it because he found that the people in the society were too concerned with wages, and he wanted a more uh, he had a, a more revolutionary approach to things, he had less pragmatic and more philosophical approach probably. And the second thing we hear his opinions on is with writing. Um, and uh, he basically, well, Mrs. Sinico is encouraging him to write his thoughts, but he doesn't want to um, expose himself, basically, to what he sees as the morality of the Irish people. Um, and here, we, I think you hear clear echoes of Joyce's own thoughts. The, the way it's phrased in the text is, she asked him, why did he not write out his thoughts? For what, he asked her with careful scorn. 
to compete with phrase mongers incapable of thinking consecutively for 60 seconds, to submit himself to the criticisms of an obtuse middle class which entrusted its morality to policemen and its fine arts to impresarios. Uh, again, taken into context that this is a, also a collection that Joyce has struggled for, for years and years to get published, that he was a victim of censorship and that this middle class morality was something that was constraining Joyce. You can definitely hear echoes of Joyce in uh, Mr. Duffy's dialogue here. Yeah, it parallels or contrasts, probably is the, is, is the correct word to describe, with the character of Little Chandler in A Little Cloud, where Joyce spends quite a lot of time describing Little Chandler's dreams and ideas of producing these Irish artworks where poetry and this descriptions these short stories that he hopes to get published in the British media with a twang of the Irish and the Irish aesthetic. So there's certainly a, a strong distinction there I think Joyce is making and the character of Little Chandler is not meant to be a positive one. is is, is very definitively a negative portrayal and th- there's a question there I suppose as to whether Joyce is presenting Mr. Duffy in arguably up to this point certainly a positive light or at least an interesting light. A little bit I think Joyce is even just playing out the ideas that he has rattling around in his own head about what his role in society society is and what his role as an artist is you know obviously a portrait of the artist as a young man is the title of his his second work after this and the position that he places himself in in Mr. Duffy's shoes and and challenging the idea that artists are impresarios publishing for the sake of satisfying an audience as opposed to publishing for the sake of satiating their own desire to produce and to create art Mm, or to to be the conscience of their race yeah I, I think the key distinction we might draw between Joyce and Duffy then is that Joyce does act Joyce writes where Duffy refuses to write. Duffy maintains a diary but he doesn't write. Duffy uh, seems like a character that's trying to avoid a lot of the common pitfalls we've seen for Dubliners up to this point. You know, he isn't a little Chandler. He has some ideals but his failure is maybe to actually act in the real dirty world and he's rather just maintain his, his purity or his ideological purity and not actually have to deal with the, with the real world. Well anyway, that's that's maybe we've gotten a little too much of the side again into Mr. Duffy's character. So the courtship continues until we get to this, this key scene and I think we'll maybe quote this scene and then we can give our reactions to it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll read out the quote. This is a chunky enough one, so bear with us, please. He thought that in her eyes he would ascend to an angelical stature, and as he had attached the fervent nature of his companion more and more closely to him, he heard the strange impersonal voice which he recognised as his own, insisting on the soul's incurable loneliness. We cannot give ourselves, it said. We are our own. The end of these discourses was that one night during which she had shown every sign of unusual excitement, Mrs. Sinico caught up his hand passionately and pressed it to her cheek. And this is, this is, you know, just an earth-shattering moment for Mr. Duffy. This is the bringing to the light or the exposing of the true nature of their relationship. And I think Mr. Duffy has definitely been, to a greater or lesser extent, aware of the nature of their relationship. And this is his desire to bring the relationship to her house, to bring it to public, to make it on obvious to all the people or the concerned party and it's in this act of very simply in some ways just touching her face with his hand that act causes him to completely dissolve and shatter any illusion or to remove any artifice around what they could have been doing or what should have been happening and this is that real breakdown moment for them yeah it's interesting to speculate on Duffy's motivations or why this act is so shocking, you know, why he reacts in this way to completely end all contact with Mrs. Sinico. We've already talked a little bit about 
Mr. Duffy isn't a, a man who wants to get involved with the real world, that he has a very meticulous nature, the way his room's set up and so on, and that perhaps this, this idea of, of romantic love is somehow too real for him. Another opinion that critics have advanced is that perhaps Mr. Duffy is a closeted homosexual. In this context, you have to remember that this would be a time where homosexual fear, fear of homosexuals, and the fear that homosexual people had of being exposed was, was very um, real. And we just we would have had the trials of Oscar Wilde in, in 1895, which would have been like a couple of years before this story was being written meant that a, it being exposed as a homosexual in any way could put you in, in severe difficulties or put you in jail. In in that context, we can maybe read um, his rejection of Mrs. Sinico as the action of a closeted homosexual who is willing to have a relationship with her, but once it becomes in any way physical, he recoils. Yeah, certainly, no. And I mean, I think the homosexual reading of Mr. Duffy is, you know, not too extreme. I think certainly, you know, I think to some extent you nearly argue that that is the rationale or it explains or it justifies a lot the activities and the functions that he has and the role that he has played or portrayed himself in society up to this point he's insulated himself from all of this and his recoiling as it were from the physical affection of of a woman is almost a rejection of the sexuality there and that concept or that engagement with you know a heterosexual lifestyle but that's not necessarily the only reading there's a brief description that she said he cancels the next meeting and then a week later she sends him back all the books and the music in some ways I think that's 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 almost a nice little moment where there's kind of almost a parallel rejection where she says you know look this affair and this this interaction has always been on some level intellectual and and, and very metaphysical and by physically sending him back the books and the music that he'd sent her or that he'd shared with her she's cutting him out of his life and she's rejecting him and if I can as I always do insist on bringing this back to the 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 three italicized words in the first story paralysis gnomon and simony that's a gnomon there i would argue the absence of those books the representation of those books into mr duffy's life and the absence of them from miss Sinico's life is the trigger for what we see happening next but i think before we jump into that i think there's a, a little bit of their their final meeting and the, the final discussion there right yeah yeah i think it actually happens before she sends the books and, and materials back to him they do meet up one more time after this this moment where she raises his hand to her we get very few details of what happens there and you're talking about gnomon or things left out of the text we learned that they meet for three hours but all we hear from it is that they walk down the roads of the park for nearly three hours they agreed to break off their intercourse every bond he said is a bond to sorrow and and that's basically all we know that of what they talked about and then as, he, as he's leaving her she starts to tremble but it's interesting again that duffy is the one with the voice here that we are given Joyce has given us perspective that as we said it kind of jumps between time periods but we're always restricted to duffy's perspective we've learned very little of miss Sinico's interiority so what does she think during this three hour conversation and again the direct speech is omitted what do they actually talk about because three hours is a long time to discuss nothing how do, how do they go about all this and it seems like a pretty pivotal point of the story again Joyce often does this he, he leaves out these, these key moments that keep us as readers guessing and I think it's, it's a very compelling technique almost immediately then Joyce uh, takes that and says well if you liked that gap how's this four years later so simply just a couple of words four years later and nothing has happened in Mr. Duffy's life of significance or interest in the intervening period he has cut off all contact with Miss Sinico and this is it things have moved forward four years as we pick up with Mr. Duffy his life life in some ways looks to parallel what it had been before but it looks a bit more hollow now he hasn't written as much he's not as engaged in his activities we get this quote one line that he has written that he scribbled down in his notebook love between man and man is impossible because there must not be sexual intercourse 
and friendship between man and woman is impossible because there must be sexual intercourse. And I think, you know, that that sentence is helpful in understanding Mr. Duffy. Absolutely, yeah. And it's certainly uh, the key kind of motivating line for critics who read Duffy as a closet of homosexual, particularly that bit. Love between man and man is impossible because there must not be sexual intercourse. If I can peel us away from the narrative once more for a, a small side note, Stanislas Joyce, who we've talked about quite a lot, and Joyce's brother, this is one of the lines that Stanislas claims is actually one of his own that Joyce has pilfered and, and, and this is a theme that recurs throughout Dubliners and, and throughout Joyce's works as a whole. Yeah, the other thing about Mr. Duffy at this point is that he's going through his Nietzsche phase. He's a nihilist now. <laughs> he's wearing all black. No, we don't we don't learn that about him, but he is reading Nietzsche, in particular Zarathustra and the gay science. Obviously Nietzsche's philosophy is a, is a broad topic, but if I can draw some very broad parallels to it, obviously one of Nietzsche's most famous sayings is uh, God is dead. I think that comes from yeah, the gay science. With Darwin and with the collapse of belief in, in, in Christian God and with God more generally, humans are now having to find their own reasons basically for living, for reasons for why they care about things, for what they do. And Nietzsche rejects like a lot of the what you would call meta narratives that people establish, things like nationalism or religion. These are all things that Nietzsche rejects. And how Duffy rejects all these things as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean I think the key the the, the other key takeaway from Nietzsche or the, the other thing that a lot of people seem to know about Nietzsche is the 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 idea the Obermensch, the the Superman or the the enhanced human being the individual who has and apologies for butchering the philosophy of Nietzsche here but um, the idea that in the absence of this what we call a meta-narrative of religion or you know spirituality in the absence of any of these overarching narratives that explain the world we're able to understand the world in a purely scientific pragmatic physical way Mr. Duffy is doing is kind of almost trying to emulate that and saying well no there's a practical rational explanation for everything that exists in the world men cannot have sex with men because they cannot produce children women must have sex with men because they have to produce children and in some ways he's trying to rationalise the destruction of that relationship that he had with Miss Sinico by saying what could that relationship have been you know and, and he talks about he references the fact that you know we could have never lived openly together at the time and we've, we've talked about this in previous episodes you know divorce wasn't legal in the absence of being able to replicate or create that within the society that they live in Mr Duffy says we have to reject that that cannot exist that this relationship is not viable it is not a representation of what our society accepts or believes in and, and that again then ties back into this idea of Mr Duffy as a closeted homosexual and the idea that his very being the essence of who he is is treated as if it doesn't exist in this society and therefore everything should not exist in this society and he creates this very artificial being for himself and who he is and what he represents in society yeah I, I do wonder if there is I mean, th- this is definitely Mr. Duffy's view that there, there's no way he can be with Mrs. Sinico, but I do wonder, again, if we compare him to, say, Parnell. Parnell did, and Parnell had this affair, and, okay, there were very negative consequences for him in the end, but he, he still did it for a while, able to live with Kitty O'Shea, whereas Duffy, again, is a man who, who fails to do, constrained by his fears, by his paralysis. So if, if we compare Duffy to Parnell, we see, uh, yeah, okay, it would be difficult, and he would maybe lose the bank job, or things would be more difficult, but if he was truly sincere in, in, in this, the one piece of colour in his life, the one valuable relationship he has in his life, then maybe he could overcome these things. But yeah, for him for him this this doesn't seem to be an option at all and and, and he's writing these kind of melodramatic phrases to, to justify it all. But again, so if we keep going along then Mr. Duffy learns of Mrs. Sinico's fate. So four years have gone by and he hasn't been in touch with her and one day he's reading the paper while eating in a in a restaurant in Georgia Street and at first we don't we don't actually find out what he read. So Joyce is just giving us his reaction and he reads the thing and he, he stops eating and the cat 
cabbage is, is going cold on his plate and the waitress is asking him is everything all right and we just have Duffy sitting there and then he eventually walks back home and it's only then then that Joyce gives us the text of the, of the newspaper article that he's been reading but I think it's an interesting technique that Duffy himself doesn't immediately react emotionally to things that Duffy's distance from his own bodily emotions are are such that we don't actually get it, any reference in the text of what he's feeling again if we're, if we're taking this as a free and direct discourse in that the narrative itself is reflective of, of Duffy's own perspective then the reason for this absence is perhaps because we're, we're in Duffy's perspective here it's interesting finally we're presented with the the, the full text of the article and we're, we're not going to give it all to you but it is interesting I suppose just just a side note again this is this is one of the few times Joyce is playing with the maybe not narrative perspective is, is, is the wrong word but the narrative structure and the fact that he's including text of a paper article interestingly uh, this is heavily suggested or is, has, has been reported by, by a number of critics and scholars to be leveraged from the actual death notice of an individual a James A. Joyce has re- had been reported to have attended the uh, the funeral of so significant I suppose in that Joyce is again once again leveraging from his own life and his own personal experiences to weave into the narratives of the different individuals that he's exploring the key line from that text though it is the deputy coroner said it was a most painful case and expressed great sympathy with Captain Sinico and his daughter with that line what jo- Joyce is doing is you know the line that becomes the heading of the newspaper article and also the title of the story itself interestingly it's a most painful case and the deputy coroner expressed great sympathy with Captain Sinico and his daughter highlighting here you know Joyce is really zeroing in on the fact that it is the husband and the daughter the people who are left behind who have the greatest sympathy expressed for them but it's Mr. Duffy himself who is the one who is experiencing the fallout from this or is experiencing the, the pain and the suffering and again I think you can you know read a gnomon into this as well the the absence of of mrs sinico is having impact on these people her her absence is a presence or has a significant weight for these people yeah it's it's interesting as well like the, the title of painful case then being the title of the story is you know it, it's obviously refers to this newspaper article but more broadly it refers to, to mr duffy's life perhaps the painful cases is his entire life the other the other thing i found interesting from that newspaper clipping was how um mrs sinico is described by her husband and daughter they really they really uh don't describe her in the most glowing terms here the husband says that they'd been married for 22 years and had lived happily until about two years ago when his wife had began to be rather intemperate in her habit and miss mary sinico said that of late her mother had been in the habit of going out at night to buy spirit yes yeah, so they're, they're really quite open about miss sinico being an alcoholic to the papers i do wonder if this was a was a man who had passed away would would you have the same that notice today would be much more praising of of, of of the of the deceased and that you wouldn't have this disparagement or this acknowledgement of, of the person being an alcoholic in the in the notice in the paper yeah so i mean i think in in parallel is the wrong word but I, I suppose following on from this or, or, or the next step in the narrative here is then Mr. Duffy's response to this and I, I, I think it's interesting you you almost follow or Joyce almost follows his responses almost you know emulating the, the, the concept of you know responses to grief where in the initial phase there's kind of a rejection and an anger and a bargaining almost followed by a, d- a degree of acceptance and, 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 and coming around to it so his his initial reaction is to be very negative and, and, and to almost fury and, and, and to some extent glad that he has avoided falling into the trap of Mrs. Sinico as he as he almost perceives it the, the idea that she has in some way created this environment for him where he's going to degrade himself I think is the word he uses with their relationship and that you know her inability to match his 
coldness and his refusal to get emotionally engaged is a success on his part to recognize that he's proud almost that he's been able to fight this off and this is all very much a, a psychological perspective that we're presented from him and it, you know i think i think that in some ways then is not mirrored but is is, is is let down by his physical reaction so initially his his stomach tightened up as a result of this and and he gets more of a physical reaction as it goes on the quote i think is as the light failed and his memory began to wander he thought her hand touched his the shock which had first attacked his stomach was now attacking his nerves he put on his overcoat and hat quickly and went out he has this emotional psychological defense mechanism almost saying you know the flaw was in hers i did everything correctly I, i'm very good but the physical response the the emotional state he's in prevents him from accepting that idea or prevents him from emulating the rejections of of, of the advance and, and and he's ultimately succumbing to his emotional state and his gut response or his, his psychological or his mental response to that is to immediately leave the house get dressed and and, and and get out of the environment this this cage that he's almost created for himself in this this very bare spartan room that we'd seen him in at the beginning of the story yeah he he, he goes to the pub then and, and and he sees there five or six working men being there who are like having their pints and, and enjoying themselves and so again there's this this contrast of mr duffy is separate from the world we've had it throughout the story but now having it again this image at the moment of his grief really brings home you know what he has sacrificed in order to be this person that's so separate throughout the story and again he enjoys a single drink with lunch and that seems to be the only time he's ever described as enjoying or indulging in alcohol and you know this this is again in stark contrast with some of the other characters we've seen throughout the the, the story of Dubliners but he immediately runs down to the pub and, and, and is, he orders a hot punch and thankfully I think he describes himself as not having to deal with the barman significantly but even with this he's unable to, to, to come to terms I suppose with his own emotional response and emotional reaction to this so he finishes a drink and, and heads out then to, to the Phoenix Park the place of his walks and, and specifically the walk that he'd had with Miss Sinico on their last in-person meeting right and in the meeting where they, they walk for the three hours and, and discuss their breakup and while he's there he kind of feels her her presence he feels her voice and her touch and it, it's here he comes around well he hasn't quite accepted it at this stage but he's he's now no longer rejecting her or being angry at her he is angry at himself at this point i suppose and he, he asks himself why had he withheld life from her why had he sentenced her to death he felt his moral nature falling to pieces Sophie has had this this separation through his whole narrative through his whole life and eventually we see with with the death of mrs Sinico, he is suddenly starting to question the way he's lived his life the entire way up to this point because the impact of this death it's interesting as well this is kind of duffy's epiphany right that he's lived a wasted life but it comes a full page before the end of the story and from there we just have quite a, a sensual or a physical description of Duffy and their actions he takes walking around the park and the sensations he feels it was an interesting technique Joyce, Joyce employs because we're so used to the gut punch moment or the denouement moment coming right at the end of the story whereas it feels here we get the we get the epiphany but then we have life goes on and he just experiences things for a bit and I think in some ways you can read this as one of those kind of meta epiphanies if I can nearly argue that where the epiphany is not so much the characters as ours or that there's a dual level to that where the character has had an epiphany he now has come to the understanding and I think he talks about the idea of her as a memory she does exist anymore and he kind of reflects on his own nature and that he'll be a memory but he undercuts that himself by even saying if anyone will remember me and I think you know there's almost this realization that oh my god the life that I've lived this entire narrative about myself and this person that I've created that I am doesn't really exist or it doesn't have a significance or a weight in the world around me I don't have anyone I have encapsulated myself within this loneliness and this spikiness and this refusal to engage with other people and you know this is almost the first time he's 
he's encountering death on a personal or emotional level, whereas contrasting significantly with the time he describes attending to his relatives at Christmas and accompanying them to the graveyard on their deaths. And there's this very disengaged level, whereas now he's very much engaged with the idea of Mrs. Sinico's death, despite the fact that he hasn't actually attended her funeral. There's an interesting dichotomy there, and we're, we're very much seeing almost a character development and a tension between, I think, what Mr. Duffy wants himself to be and what he projects or what he believes he is as a person and the reality of who he is as a person are at great tension here yeah he's he's fully um questioning everything about himself at this point exactly what you described there is, is kind of summed up in this in this quote he gnawed at the rectitude of his life he felt that he had been outcast from life's feast life's feast being you know everything that brings joy in life and he feels some somehow an outcast from from this pretty devastating and maybe i'll, I'll read the final few sentences we normally do i feel like maybe there's less inter- interpretation here but I, I still feel they're quite poignant he began to doubt the reality of what memory told him he halted under a tree and allowed the rhythm to die away he could not feel her near him in the darkness nor her voice touch his ear he waited for some minutes listening he could hear nothing the night was perfectly silent he listened again perfectly silent he felt that he was alone yeah that is the end of the text it is harrowing to be honest with you i i find that to be a really depressing conclusion to the story that you you, you are just left in the way that joyce kind of does that four-year jump cut comes back to this moment and it's like yeah you know literally between 4 p.m and 7 8 in the evening when Sir Duffy has come to terms with these things this is the last time he will ever intellectually or emotionally engage with the world ever again and he is completely shut off from the world the implication there to, to my mind at least is that the title a painful case obviously taken from the newspaper report but also is it Mr. Duffy's life is is a life lived outside of the confines of human emotion and rejecting your own visceral emotional feelings being alone by choice but not necessarily by intent a good life I don't think any of us are coming away from this assuming Mr. Duffy or thinking or believing that Mr. Duffy is a happy person at the end of this yeah it's, it's, it's interesting that it comes at this point in the collection as well because Mr. Duffy sometimes feels like a response to the previous Dubliners and that previous Dubliners have all failed in different ways whether that's you know overindulgence in alcohol or getting caught up in relationships that they don't believe in and so on whereas Mr. Duffy is, is trying to be authentic to himself and, and trying not to get caught up into the perils of what is affecting most of the Dubliners and we even hear that and you know he's living as far away as he can from the city to try and you know not be like the others in the city but as you said Mr. Duffy's life is, is it's a harrowing life it's a bleak picture we get of him at the end and so Joyce seems to be saying like there's no you can't just reject everything about Dublin there's no easy way out of this Dublin as a paralyzing city you have to still live in this city this is not the way out and I think it aligns as well with you know Joyce's idea of of an artist and and what an artist is and how they engage with society Um, absolutely so look I think that's the end of the story so we move into our wrap-up moment and and, and really consider the story in the round and what we've what we've thought about it so I'll throw the floor open to you John in terms of uh, thoughts on this one we touched on the idea of the interpretation of Duffy as closeted gay man that wasn't my reading when I first read the story we all bring our own reads to it and I don't think for a long time that wasn't a widely held critical view it was only more recently that, that people started to look at it from that perspective uh, once I've thought about it from that way it seems like obvious reading from a modern understanding of why is he acting so repressed why does he act so, react so strongly to the notion of, of physical interaction and I think you can read it either way I do think you can believe you know Mr. Duffy is this man with very rigid ideals and rigid ideas about how he should live his 
life and the idea of him living a life of deception that an affair would entail is so repulsive to him that that's why he reacts so strongly but I still I'm, I'm not sure how, how I feel about that I think I would I, I would still perhaps lean towards believing that Joyce didn't write him as a homosexual but uh, hard to say for sure interesting yeah no I think I picked up on um, the homosexual interpretation of Mr. Duffy again to, to be honest purely from that line around the idea of love between man and man is impossible because there must not be sexual intercourse and that real challenge that the society existed and you know Joyce as, we, as we've talked about numerous occasions now at this stage the, the vulgarity and the willingness of Joyce to really discuss real ideas and concepts you know homosexuality is obviously something that's existed throughout the history of humankind so it's not inconceivable or it is unbelievable to think that Joyce was not aware of homosexuality as a concept and to my mind I think that's a, that's a very valid interpretation of, of Mr. Duffy and in that reading of it or in that interpretation I think you, you, you almost soften your image of Mr. Duffy not so much as a flawed character but as a tragic character whose tragic flaw is his own homosexuality not because it in of itself is wrong or judged but simply because that is something that cannot exist in the society in which he operates and lives and that's his flaw you know it's not it's innate to his being, but it's not something that he's chosen or something that he's he's adapted. And it's not of his, his own volition. Ex- exactly, and he's suffering for who he is innate to his person, and 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 that's terrifying in some ways. That that reading or that interpretation of it is incredibly depressing. I think is probably the the, the word, and I th- I, th- I think depressing is almost the the word you can you can stamp across the narrative here or the story here. Yeah. So that interpretation aside, um, how how did you feel about the story, Lachlan? You know, I I. I I have always liked this story. I've always thought it was a really interesting story and I, I always thought it was a very well-written one. But, you know, to be honest, as as we've gone back and as, as I've dove back into this collection, this is one I have to say I have a newfound appreciation for. And I've, I've really, you know, getting this level of critical analysis and, and, and doing this kind of deep dive reading and interpretation of it, I don't think I'd previously appreciated just just the absolute depth of richness in this text and I've, I've often said you know two galants and, and, and counterparts are two of my favorite stories and doing the the, the real dive, deep dive critical analysis you know they've they've held up but this is one of the ones that i think has really enhanced its position you know it's it, it's relatively risen up my rankings in terms of them um, the, the stories I, I i quite enjoy the emotional gut punch and and and, and just that it's not a positive emotion but it's it's a strong one and, and, and that sense of feeling that i get from really reading it and interpreting it and, 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 and sitting with the narrative is, 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 is great. Yeah, that's interesting. I was actually coming with almost the exact same take in that not one of my favourite stories initially, but as I got more into the analysis, this is a story that is littered with references. As you said, that he's one of the few characters we see that's reading a lot and there's so many texts there and there's even references. The thing we didn't really touch on of, of he might have left apples in his drawer, which is a or a reference to a story from Schiller, or, or Goethe met Schiller or went to Schiller's house and he found that uh, Schiller had apples in his drawer that were kind of gone off. Schiller's wife said that that's the only way he can write, he always has them there. So there's a lot of things that you're, you're not picking up on, maybe it's just on the first read here. And yeah, I think maybe living in Germany as well, there's so many references to German philosophers and German writers and so on. And uh, it's really enhanced its its position in my esteem, let's say. So yeah, yeah, I definitely, definitely appreciate it a lot now. But I'm, I'm also, I, I, I do think the bleakness of it is kind of still puts me off in some ways. That's, I find it very uh, challenging. Challenging, yeah. Or, or just like, it's not a story that I would like to revisit. <laughs> 
after we've done this, maybe, is the way to put it. But I'm, I'm also curious, because it's saying this, that the story of coming up next month is not one I've delved so deeply in, in terms of the understanding of the references and the, and the context of it. So I'm also quite looking forward to doing that one. Yeah, absolutely. So as we mentioned before, that is going to be Ivy Day in the committee room. And that is a dense one. So uh, rarely, that's probably one of the few ones I would say, maybe you don't need to read that in advance of listening to the podcast. And we'll probably need to provide you with a lot of the socio-political context for that one. This is really Joyce on politics and steroids at the same time, I would say. Yeah, I, I still think you can read it, but then, uh, yeah, get, get our take afterwards. But we hope you'll join us. So until then, I've been John. And I've been Lachlan. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.